0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. So good to see you, and um, so good to see old faces, not like old in age, but um, hey, Danny, don't walk away yet. And new faces, I met some new folks today, and I know that many of you are joining us online, but... Here you go, brother. (laughs) So uh, if you don't recognize this guy, he left us a little while ago um, uh, because of sin in his life. He was taken into (laughs) captivity to a foreign land called Texas, and uh, he was back in town, and he just wanted to play guitar with us. So we love Danny Ruckel. Great to have you, brother. Yeah. So many of you have heard of this foreign land called Texas. It's a different place. Um, So, uh, if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and today, like uh, Rory read, we're going to be in Luke 18. So, if you have a Bible, you can open it, or if you use a device, you can turn that on, and turn there, we're going to refer to it, and uh, even if you don't want to do that, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. As we've noted before, as we've gone through Luke, that... um, At least one-third of Luke is unique in the details or stories or events that it gives us that no other Gospels do, but that's not the case in this back-and-forth conversation that Rory just read between Jesus and this man, and then subsequent to that conversation between Jesus and his disciples. That interaction that we just read is recorded in all three of the synoptic. Gospels, which means Matthew, Mark, Luke, Um, which means to me that this this incident really stood out in their memories. It was especially poignant to them. So what was it that made this conversation so important that all three of them would include some version of it? Perhaps the answer to that question uh, is found in a question. And that interaction that happens between Jesus and this man uh, gives us a question. What is it? It's in uh, verse 18 when the man asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? Maybe, maybe you haven't asked it out loud. Maybe you've thought it. And uh, it's an important question to answer uh, for Those of us who have faith in Christ, um, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but there are actually three questions in this little dialogue that goes back and forth. Uh, In verse 18, Jesus asked, or the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? And then the disciples asked the question, who then can be saved? So right there, you have the perfect life group discussion. For all of you that are in our life groups, which is um, these are groups that meet across the city, some on campus, others in homes, and we just consider these things, different people from different walks of life, and we ask questions, and we talk about that and process the things that we're seeing in the Bible. It's really fascinating for like, people who come at it from so many different experiences to talk about that, and it's, it adds so much beyond... Um, you know, my most riveting sermons, I know, but uh, it adds so much to it. So what's going on here in this conversation, in this back and forth, that makes it so important to the gospel uh, authors? So let's jump in with that, okay? So the whole thing begins with this individual who comes to Jesus with an inquiry about eternal life. And we don't know much about him except that, number one, he seems sincere. He says he calls Jesus good teacher, rabbi. So he seems to know something about Jesus. He's encountered him before, heard his teaching. Mark, in Mark's gospel, he says that the man fell on his knees before Jesus. So he's humbling himself before him and showing respect to this rabbi, uh, which is especially poignant to me considering how his life is at this time. Uh, Because he's been pretty fortunate. That's like the other, the second thing that we know about him. He's been pretty fortunate in life. If, I mean, Luke indicates that he's a person of significance. He calls him a ruler which could be religiously or in government and politics, but he, t- he has influence and he has power. And uh, both Matthew and Mark in their versions tell us that he is rich and young. So that's why we get, th- th- in your Bible, it might be bold above this, it says it, the story of the rich young ruler. Some people have all the luck, right? I mean, sometimes we talk about religion in a way that we say that, you know, that it's kind of a crutch, that people just need it because they don't have anything else in life. They're kind of desperate. And so religion makes up for that lack. And sometimes that can be true, I think. But it's not true in this case because this man has everything that anyone could want. Yet with all of that, once you see that he's not satisfied in his life. And with all that good fortune that he's experienced, he's still longing for something else. The third thing I want you to notice about him, I think that we learn, is that he's a pretty good person. Uh, Jesus ticks off a few of the Ten Commandments in his presence, and then the man responds this this way in verse 20, he said, all these have I kept since I was a boy. So maybe he kept them, maybe he didn't. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? That's a pretty bold statement, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I got that down. I'm the master of all those. So let's just stipulate that he's devout and he's religious. And he's been following the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, are not just a list of rules that God gives. The Ten Commandments were given when the, when the Israelites escaped slavery and God was laying aside land for them to be his people And the commandments were the way in which they were going to live in this new place that God was giving them so that they could shine the light of who God is. What what does God look like in a people that follow after him? That's what the Ten Commandments are are for. And they are the values that God wants to shine through his people at that time. And this man, this young man, He's been keeping those. At least he thinks he has, right? But being good um, alone doesn't seem to satisfy him. And Jesus knows how to cut right through the heart to the matter, right through the heart of the matter. And in verse 22, he says, when he heard this, he said to him, after he said, yeah, I got all those, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, there's a few ways that we could look at what Jesus just said. He could be doing a gotcha, like, uh, you missed one. Or uh, if this man has, like, a self-righteousness issue, uh, then Jesus is kind of going, okay, and and giving him sort of an aha moment. But Jesus isn't saying here that, um, well, you didn't keep all the Ten Commandments. Because to sell everything and give it away is not a commandment, right? It's not in the tent. But I do think that when Jesus says that to him, he's referring to a commandment that may not come readily to mind. That in order for this man to see his lack, um, he's going to have to think more deeply about what Jesus is saying to him. And it's beyond just maintaining this checklist with God. So what Jesus is starting in this dialogue is that it's not just about reciting the right answers with Jesus. It's about who we are. And this man in his search for satisfaction, um, Jesus is trying to get at something deeper within him that's going to give him the answer that he's looking for. And he may be aware, secretly, of his own darker side. And maybe he's just been able to do enough good works that people will think that he's a good person. Or who knows, uh, and maybe I I think that this is the most likely, he just may not even be aware of something about himself. Because we all have blind spots, right? We all have our biases, and we seek to confirm them all the time. We can be self-deceived. And we can create our own perspective of ourselves or of others and, of course, God. But whatever's floating around in this man's head, um, what is obvious is this is an aha moment for him. Because in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And it seems like that he's kind of carved out an exception for him. He's devout and he's religious, but he's kind of like left this quadrant of his life, this part of his life that uh, is in a, in a, he gets an exemption on. So he's kind of saying like, I'm pretty awesome. Uh, look at all these things that I've done or that I do, except, except for this one thing, and we're not going to talk about that. And Jesus points it out, right? Dang. You know, if, has Jesus ever done that to you? I mean, uh, you know, it's like you're clicking along and you're thinking you're a really good pastor <laughs> or a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad or a worker. I mean, a, you, in your career. And then you, you're just thinking that Jesus is affirming everything about you. And then you realize that, oh, it's like burp, burp, big red flashing light. Um, Jesus won't affirm everything about us. He's very affirming to human beings, but he doesn't affirm everything, right? And he shoots straight with this guy about this gap, but you can hear compassion in his words. In verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And all the rich people said, hey, what's up with that, Jesus? And uh, so I think probably Jesus has seen this before. This is kind of a commonplace experience among humanity. So you see, he makes this really big generalization with this man. And essentially what he's saying is like, you know, I can see that this is hard for you. um, Because you're holding on to something. And I understand why, but it's obstructing you from gaining the thing that you want most. And it's why you came to me with the question in the first place. Um, The truth is, it's really hard for someone who has a lot to give up um, in order to have the life that they want. Because it looks like a loss. By the way, um, historically, archaeologically, there is um, no history of a camel gate or a needle gate <laughs> that, um, like, because this is a myth that arose in Christianity, just a, maybe within the last few hundred years, that there was some gate to cities where it was like really tiny, and they called it the needle gate, and where the camel had to squeeze through, um, there's no evidence for that. It's just something that got started. Um, and again, it's like if you just think about it practically, what purpose would that serve? Here's a really narrow gate; it'll make it really hard for the camels to get in. So, just thought I'd dispel that myth and destroy all of your faith that you believe about the camel gate or the needle gate. But I think Jesus here is—he's using hyperbole, right? Maybe, maybe when he's talking, he's he's looking for illustrations, and there's a camel there, and he goes. Da, da, da. Just like a camel can't get through a needle. I don't know how that happened, but that's just the way I imagine it. Um, but Jesus is plainly straight with this guy. Uh, for his own sake, he's saying, if this is what you want, this is what it's going to take. And the man is bombed out, obviously. Mark's gospel says his face fell. And Matthew said he went away. He just walked away. And, of course, Luke here says that he was sad about that. And I want you to just notice that Jesus lets him walk away. Doesn't run after him. He doesn't try to talk him out of it. He lets him go. And then, in the middle of this, it looks like the light bulbs are going off with uh, the disciples in their brains. Because in verse 26, those who heard this, the other people around, including the disciples, said, Who then can be saved? Man, if this is the way it is, like... Who can be saved? What do they mean by that? Because very, very few of them were rich. And in the first century, people believed that if you were wealthy, you were favored by God. So, like the logic is, well, if a person who we perceive has been favored by God is not saved, then what hope is there for anyone else? That's what's happening here. Or maybe they're just making connections with their own personal obstacles. And Jesus replies in verse 27, What is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, he's just saying, um, yeah, it sure doesn't seem very likely, does it? But God makes it a possibility. And all the rich people said, whew, Right? The disciples, you can tell, through this conversation, they're feeling a little insecure about everything after this statement about rich people. And so Peter said to him, We have left all to follow you. Just want to remind you. Uh, So they're obviously traumatized by all this. And they want to remind Jesus, Hey, we're on Team Jesus. We're really good and we gave up a lot to be here. Right? Then Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus here is saying, yeah, I see that about you. And it will be so worth it, both in this age, both in your life today and in your life into eternity You don't have to give everything away, but if you end up needing to, if you end up feeling like to be a Christian, to follow Jesus means something has to fall away, and it feels like a loss to you, it will be worth it. Jesus says it will be worth it today, and it will be worth it far into eternity. Do you think that the disciples ever regretted following Jesus? knowing their end where each one of them their their lives end in martyrdom uh do you think they ever said man i wish i had never met jesus life would have been so much better he really jacked it up for me <laughs> i can't picture them saying that so that, you know you can even see this this seed thought continues through their life and that That wraps up the passage, Um, but we're not done yet. How does this bridge to today? That's a question we often ask here, and what can we learn from it? So number one, I want to point out that Jesus' invitation is to follow him, to follow him. The rich young ruler comes to him seeking eternal life. And he says, from a child, I've kept the Ten Commandments. And Jesus responds to him, go sell everything and give it to the poor. And we've already noted, Jesus is not adding an 11th commandment here when he said, go sell your stuff. In other words, Jesus isn't saying to have eternal life, um, he must achieve some moral standard that nobody else is doing. You just have to be exceptional. In your morality, their dialogue of back and forth is a prelude to what Jesus is ultimately inviting him into. Did you notice it in verse twenty-two? He said, "Come, follow me." That's the invitation. Why is that so important? And why am I making that distinction? Because every Christian, all of us, need to keep in mind that um, Jesus didn't set out to make converts or to set a high morality bar, or even to make the world's largest religion in a few years. What he did is he invited people to follow him. And sometimes the way that we talk about Christianity today and trying to simplify things and systematize things, we can obscure this fact. Now, I believe in conversional faith and process faith. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like, you know, some of us have this, like, there's like this clear conversion in my life. That's what I had. I was like going the wrong way. I've told you stories about it. Some of you are upset that your children found that out about me, but like I was not on God's plan, and I was like, boom, like miraculously saved. And then others have used like faith has just been a process. I, I think both are true. But what we need to be careful of is um, to so simplify or create a system of faith, that being a Christian uh, becomes solely based on something we did in the past. Like I prayed a prayer, I filled out a card, or I was at a big stadium, and I walked down in response to a message, and I did a thing. And we have to be be, uh, cautious about allowing it to just become, becoming a Christian, just some intellectual compliance that, uh, well, I believe in this creed. There's like this list of things, and I accept all of those, so I hold to those beliefs. Or I'm for these issues or against these issues, so my mind is like Christian. And I think we have to be careful not to turn our faith into like a moral standard that we hold to. Like, well, I'm a Christian because I'm a really good person. Uh, I don't do these things, I do these things, and so Christian faith is kind of a performance that we live up to. I'm faithful in my marriage, I work hard, I vote this way or that on these issues, and so I'm Christian. Those all can be genuine expressions of faith, but the problem is Jesus never equates those solely with eternal life, and they can give us false positives for genuine faith. To point to something that I did in the past makes what I'm actually doing today totally irrelevant to my faith. I can say, well, I did this thing, but there's no connection to what I'm, what I'm living out today. So being a Christian isn't just like a date we put on a calendar. It's like, there, there, it happened. It's following Jesus today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And if Christianity is just something that we just intellectually concede to, um, to like a certain belief that assigns faith to a list of things we say that we believe or re, uh, re, re, um, kind of repeat. Thanks, brother. Um, then it leaves out how those beliefs just really affect me. I can say these things about my faith, but like, like are they changing me? I, am I living up to that in a way because to say we've, we follow Jesus is to have not just our beliefs shaped, but our lives as well. And if we just, if Christianity is just holding to a moral standard, then, then we're just like creating like this performance chart. Like uh, I know a lot of you guys, the parents of younger children, you have a chore chart, right? And so, like, you know, like some of my kids have that for their children. And you go there and you can just see all their chores. You know, it's like you do this, it's 50 cents. And, and uh, this is like picking up the dog stuff is like worth three bucks a week. And uh, so sometimes we, if we make Christianity just a moral standard, then we just kind of look at our chart, right? And we're like, well, look at me, look at all the X's I have in here. I'm adding up a lot of blessings. And then I can look down at someone else's chore chart in society and go, yeah, they're slacking, so they're not going to get rewarded. We follow Jesus in an entirely different context than uh, the first century, but it, it still comes down to the same thing, to be uh, daily connected to him like a like vine is to the branches, um, to be with Jesus, to be shaped by Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. And that's way harder than praying the sinner's prayer or marking my baptism date on the calendar. Following Jesus is often hard, sometimes impossible, and um, because so much competes for our heart and our mind. We only have so much energy. And that's, uh, as this man learned, Uh, obstacles can arise between us and our desire to follow Jesus. We encounter these things that seem like a loss or they're in the way of us following Jesus. A few years ago, I I did a race down in San Diego. It was called the Combat Challenge, and it was held on the Marine Base. And it was like a three or five mile run, but it wasn't just a run. It was like they took us through all these um, obstacle courses that they had on the Marine base, and uh, the goal then was to not just finish the distance, but to do each obstacle as you ran the race. And by the way, I ran that race in Etnies skater shoes because I can't—I didn't have running shoes and I didn't have time to get them. So, and my feet hurt for like two weeks. The point is, like as we as we run the race, as the Bible says. Um, It isn't just like running. There's going to be obstacles that we have to go through in our pursuit of Jesus. They are part of the course. Um, So sometimes those obstacles in our mind can be like, they're just some easy go-tos that I don't think that this is what's happening here. It's like we can think, well, the obstacle is Satan's trying to stop me. And he is, right? Or the obstacle is uh, the court system or the laws in this land, and sometimes they are the obstacle. Or it's just the whole system, the worldly system that we live in, and we think, that well, that's my obstacle. Those are all obstacles, but I'm thinking about something that's more close to home, obstacles that we build um, consciously sometimes, but very often subconsciously or so that they're obstacles of our own doing. We create our own obstacles to Jesus, and we may not even be aware that we built them because we can be self-deceived or self-distracted. So in this man's case, what was his obstacle? Cash. Cash, <laughs> Cash money. That's right. Go and sell everything uh, and give to the poor. And in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. So the very and the very are connected there. Like you'd just be a little sad if you're kind of wealthy, I guess. But he was very sad. And it, this, this, this interaction isn't entirely about money. But let's talk about it just for a couple of minutes just to make sure that you got your uncomfortable moment in church. It is true that money can be an obstacle, right, to us. It can also be an incredible Resource. So the handling of material goods in the Bible is—it's uh, a major life and spiritual issue. Jesus did say, "Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." So it's like it's part of being faithful as a Christian. So money can make you embra- or break you in life, and uh, it can be a real stumbling block. Or it can make you amazingly influential for the cause of Christ. A couple of years ago, the people that we have a loan with, the loan officer was telling us how she attended Mariner's Church in Newport Beach. Anybody heard of that church? It's a really big, amazing church. And uh, they owed $19 million on their building, and somebody paid it off. Exactly how I felt. (laughs) So why didn't they join... Sunridge. <laughs> and by the way, if anybody's thinking what is our loan right now, Bob? About 5 million? 5.9? 2.9. Anybody have 2.9 million? You can pay it off. I think that would be awesome. The truth is, this is an amazingly giving church. Uh, we have amazing statistics and we keep these like consistency and you guys you, you knock it out of the park. Um, maybe it's since I became the pastor that it's like it just thinned the crowd and only the faithful are here, I know. So like, you're really committed. But, um, so we thank you for that. But like this man had an obstacle and his obstacle was money because he worshiped his money more than he worshiped Jesus. In fact, he worshiped his money so much he, it was keeping him from getting the thing that he really wanted in his life. Now, what does the Bible call s- something that a person worships more than God? An idol. That's right. Now, I'd be willing to bet that of you guys sitting here, very few of you have uh, idols in your front yard. You know, you don't ha- maybe you have the big lions. I don't know. I've seen that in a couple of uh, houses in different neighborhoods, but like, you don't have a totem pole out there or tiki thing. I, I don't know. It's like whatever your, your picture uh, of an idol is. Um, Idols today are more internal. There are modern idols. And just like I stumbled upon this studying, and you know, like I'm a big fan of Tim Keller. If I don't know something, I look up to see what Tim says, and then I just say that. But in your note sheet, there's even a chart. And he talks about modern idols. And this is from a 2012 uh, video series that he did called Gospel and Life. And so on the left-hand column, these are all like modern internal idols. So he says, um, if you seek power, which is success, winning, or influence, your greatest nightmare is going to be humiliation. And um, the people around you will feel used, and your problem emotion is going to be anger. So don't, don't, don't raise your hand on any of these that, like, connect with you. Okay, uh, if you seek approval, in other words, that's your idol, then you're looking for affirmation, love in your relationships. Your greatest nightmare is um, rejection. But people around you will feel smothered. And your biggest problem, emotion is cowardice. If you seek comfort, whether it's privacy, lack of stress, freedom, then your greatest nightmare is stress on your life or demands made upon you. And people around you because of that will feel neglected and your greatest feared emotion is boredom. And then if you seek control as an idol, which is about your self-discipline, having certainty on everything, keeping the standards, then your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. And uh, the people around you will often feel condemned and your problem emotion is worry. That just makes so much sense to me. Between the gospel accounts of Luke, Matthew, and Mark, this man that's interacting with Jesus uh, has become known as the rich young ruler. He's rich, which is an exclusive club today, but was even more exclusive then, in the first century. He's a ruler, which means he's a person of influence. He has authority. He's significant when he walks down the street. He has the admiration of people, and he probably has lots of followers on Instagram. (laughs) And then he's young, which means he's strong. He's got his health. He's got energy and resourcefulness. And what's interesting here is when you're young, you're not usually rich and powerful, right? Something you earn. So he's either really, really savvy or he's been privileged in his life. The only thing that isn't mentioned here is good-looking. But we all know if you're rich, powerful, and young, even if you're not, you're good-looking, right? Let's just face that. So he's got it all. And aren't these the things that our culture admires today? I mean, who doesn't want to be rich, young, and powerful And it's, it's not that he just, he has these things. But remember, he has everything that comes with those. All the advantages that come with that. And so, the, the idea of having to part with that, I mean, put yourself in his shoes. It'd be really hard. Sometimes we're faced with similar decisions. Sometimes they're subtle. But when faced with, we have to ask ourselves, do, do we want a partnership with Jesus or do we want his lordship that's a big question and when i say when i when i say that i sound incredibly religiously prideful like i have this all together but don't don't miss the truth of what Jesus said here. And I think this is so important for all of us that know that it's like so easy for these things to creep in on us. He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I think that that should be one of the most encouraging sentences in the whole Bible. Um, I've, I've told you before um, that the church that I became a Christian, the youth pastor's wife saw me for the first time and mumbled or muttered to someone like, if that guy ever became a Christian, it would be a miracle. So whatever I was given off was like, um, was not good. But what is impossible with man is possible with God, right? Right now there's like 25 adults upstairs in our children's ministry. And all these people have busy lives and they, like who, why in the world would they interrupt their Sunday morning where they could be kicking back on the patio, having a cup of coffee, and they're up there in the chaos right now. We can't hear it. That's why we put them far away so that you guys could really concentrate. Like, why would they do that? Why would a human being do that? Well, um, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And during the week, there's like 200 people that meet in homes or on this campus, and, you know, they're all busy but they pick a night and they go and then like sit with a group of people that they're not going to all agree with, that it's a hassle, they're tired, they want to lay on the couch, and, uh, but they, they get in their car and they go there and they have a conversation about spiritual things. Why would someone do that? What's impossible with men is made possible with God. And this band that was up here and and the tech team, you know, they showed up here at 6 a.m. ish and they're doing all that like they wanted to sleep in. You get what I'm saying? It's like, why are you here? Why? Why aren't you at the beach today? You're kind of asking that same question right now, but (laughs) you are here. What's impossible with man is possible with God. So the so like. If we're constantly questioning our ability to be a a real Jesus follower, then that's the right thing because it'll make us rely upon him in ways that we wouldn't if we're just like, oh yeah, I'm the master of all of these things, which leads us kind of to the last thought that I have for you out of this is that the ultimate answers about life are found in God. You know, this rich, young ruler's question is universal. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the obstacles to that life are universal as well. And the solution to those obstacles is universal too. Jesus said, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times and as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying eternal life isn't just like a, like a thing on a timeline. It's a quality of life. It's, it's a meaningful life. Some Bible versions, Jesus may say, like, I've come to give you life, eternal life, and more abundantly. It's a way of life as well. And the longing that this man had um, for remaining rich and influential, he, he could see in this moment that it, he knew that it didn't satisfy him. And yet, I mean, that's, that's why he came to Jesus, right? With the question in the first place. And in spite of all of this, it, indi- it shows us that Despite of having all of these things, he still had hopes and dreams for something more. But at that time, at least for then, um, he just couldn't see it. And Jesus says, Wh- whatever that is, it's worth it. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And let me just wrap up this way by saying that, you know, all of us. Um, we have things that we set out in life that we dream about, that we're, that we're hoping for. And they're common to us. We hope for a job that more than pays our bills, that gives us a little extra to have something in life that we, that we enjoy going to. Many of you here, you, you had hopes and dreams of having a family, getting married and having kids and possibly grandkids. We think about as we grow old, to be comfortable in our retirement and to have our loved ones around us. Um, and then life happens and things change. And we find that we, you know, very rarely can we get all of those things lined up where life is perfect. And even when they are, there's still this nagging emptiness that we feel. And we realize, even when we have all these nice things, it's like, I'm not as happy as I thought I was going to be when I, when I had this. Cindy and I joke all the time. It's like, when we start thinking about doing the next thing or, like, buying something, we're like, oh, man, when we get that, what do we say? Life begins. That's what we think. When we do that, oh, life begins. And then, like, when it doesn't, we even feel guilty about like that. We don't feel that great about it, so it's like this cycle, and we respond to that dissatisfaction in different ways. Some of us think, well, the problem are the things in our life, so all we need to do is remove the things. So, like, if I have a problem in my marriage, then I just need to ch- trade out my wife for my husband, or if my problem is my job or my boss, then I just get a new job, or uh, undermine my boss. Or if my problem's in my neighborhood, I just get a new house and a new neighborhood. Um, or if the problem is like the state I live in, well, if I just go to another state, it'll be perfect. Except for Texas, Danny, I want to say. Well, Arkansas is fine. fine. Others of us respond this way. We say, you know, like, I, well, what I need to do is master my own destiny. Like, I just need to work harder. If I can just achieve that next milestone or I can make more money, it's like then it's like I can just keep cranking and I can get over these things because I'm not satisfied here. But if I get that next thing, I'm going to be happy. And then the, the, the joy keeps eluding us. And for some of us, we just give up. We, we sink into a pit of despair. And it, um, it's like the world is so awful and we're so unhappy that joy becomes something that is impossible in this day and time. And we're only going to ever be happy in heaven. And yet, even in the back of our mind, we're like, we're concerned. We're not even going to be happy in heaven. And so we just kind of give up. And we resign ourselves to the fact. It's like, well, you know, there's just not going to be joy in life. It's going to be miserable. And we become that person who... Life is never good. Or we can turn to God. And this is for Christians too, I want to say. Because if we can see that all of life is a gift from God, then that's a game changer. That, that life can only be enjoyed in the way that it was meant to be enjoyed through the gift giver the gifts won't give the gifts won't do it unless we're attached to the gift giver and that is an aha moment for us for this very very fortunate man that we just read about all of his security all of his identity were in the things that we think would make us happy that told him, even in the first century, that this was going to make him happy. Wealth, significance, youth. But having had them all, he realized that they weren't the ultimate answer. And that's the question, I think, whether you're a longtime Christian or you're exploring faith, I think the ultimate question is, God, like, can I, where are, where is the secret? Where is the life found? And it's in Him. And so if you're, if you, if you're a person of faith, I want you to like rethink. Like, what, what are we pursuing? And if you're on the edge of faith or you're considering faith, it's the same question. It's just your starting point is different. It's like, what what is really going to satisfy me? Is it going to be God or the things that God has made for us to enjoy, whatever they may be? And is there a way for us to take everything that God has given us and see it through his eyes and hold it in a way, not just money, but our family, our, our hopes and dreams, the relationships that we have. Can we hold them in light of that there's something god is in it for us that's the secret and i think that that's what this guy didn't get i like to think that he circled back around don't you it's like he seems so genuine i hope we didn't just walk away and become the most loudest atheist in jerusalem i don't know it's like i hope we like got it later and circled back around we can too